Welcome, everybody, to another edition of the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. I am eager to tell you about today's show. Today is Wednesday, and we're talking about Equal Pay Day, which happens to be the second Tuesday in April, which symbolically represents that women have to work a lousy four and a half months for free compared to men's salaries. Today, our guest, Dr. Warren Farrell, is known as the intellectual father of, of the men's movement, and he was the only man ever elected three times to the board of the National Organization for Women in New York City. He's a best-selling author of Why Men Are the Way They Are, The Myth of Male Power, why Men Earn More, which we're going to be talking about today, which is the startling truth behind the pay gap and what women can do about it. And, um, you know, you'll be able to find all of these books. I have the links for you available on my Facebook fan page. My fan page, if you haven't already uh, subscribed, is so easy to do. Just go to Google, Facebook, The Men's Advocate Show, and uh, you'll have all these links uh easy and available to you. You can also reach Dr. Farrell at warrenfarrell.com. That's warrenfarrell.com. Again, these links will be on my Facebook fan page. Before we um, have Dr. Farrell join us, uh, if you happen to have missed last week's show, we had a great topic for you, and the topic was squeeze every penny out of the IRS with our tax expert, Dan Pila. And we discussed top tips for 2016 and how to get every deduction that you're entitled to, um, common mistakes tax taxpayers make, delayed in paying your taxes, what to do as a first step, when to graduate to an accounting application or to a CPA, and more. So if you happen to have missed last week's show, all you have to do is go to my mobile app and listen on demand. Uh, my mobile app is available for Android users as well as I, I, the iOS platform. And you can also listen on demand on SoundCloud and TuneIn. So let us hop back into today's topic. We are talking about equal pay debunked. Why men earn more. So uh, call on the call now button on the listen live button from my mobile app or you can also dial in at 951-922-3532, 951-922-3532. Welcome Dr. Farrell to the program. I'm so excited to have you here today. Thank you. Um, it's a real pleasure. Linda. Thank you. Well, All right, I, so- I think it will be a real pleasure. We haven't done it yet. <laughs> of course it will. <laughs> okay. Let's give a little the, the uh, listeners a little bit of a background with regard to when Equal Pay first came up as an issue. It actually started way back in 1869 with a letter to the editor of the New York Times who questioned why female government employees were not paid the same as male workers. Now, very few people deny the justice of the principle that equal pay should command equal pay uh, without regard to the sex of the laborer, but it's one thing to acknowledge the right of a principle and quite another to practice it. At the time, the author of the letter noted that the U.S. government employed 500 women in the Treasury Department, but they that they made only half as much as their male counterparts. Uh, A resolution to ensure equal pay to the government employees passed the House of Representatives by almost 100 votes, but was ultimately watered down by the time it passed fully in the Senate in 1870. In the 20th century, the issue came up again because they needed all workers, including female workers, for the war effort. And so it is. And then once again, it came up uh, in a major way in the early 70s uh, with the women's movement, who I think start off with a great premise equal pay for equal work. Now, the ladies of the time, they couldn't solve that problem of equal pay, so then we started this negative spiral of male bashing. They they not only decided to attack 
men in the workplace, but just all men in general. And somehow we have this climate of of uh, debasing and devaluing men. So anyway, fast forward to now, to 2017, and you are joined by uh, my guest, Dr. Warren Farrell. Dr. Farrell, how did you get involved in the, the women's movement? Tell us a little bit about your background and what are, what are some of your thoughts on equal pay? Yeah, I was, uh, back in 1969-70, I was teaching at Rutgers University, and, um, and the women's movement surfaced, and um, I was also doing my doctorate at NYU, and I started really being excited about what the women's movement was saying, and the students in my class said, you know, Dr. Farrell, you have, like, fire in your belly um, when you are talking about the, uh, the value of the women's movement and the importance of it. And so I decided to change my doctoral dissertation. Actually, I wasn't Dr. Farrell, but I was, um, I was doing my doctoral dissertation. And, um, the, uh, and my wife at the time said, yeah, go for it if you really feel that um, inspires you. And so I did, and um, I was then joined uh, as part of changing my dissertation to something re- um, related to the women's movement. Um, I started to really focus on um, the value of the women's movement, and that led to my being um, on the board of directors of the National Organization for Women in New York City. And so that, um, and so that, that got me involved with um, women's issues, and I was speaking around on women's issues for a good part of the next um, 10 years, and then tried to do a lot of um, experiences to get men to understand women, such as um, had, I, had, I said that every woman is in a beauty contest every day of her life, and if women want, if men want to experience what that's like emotionally, uh, they need to go through the beauty contest of everyday life that women go through. And so wow. I, had, I had all the men in the audience, like sometimes five or six hundred, go through um, what I called the beauty contest of everyday life until they, we came out with one winner or six finalists, and then we asked them moral virtue questions and um, how to do and talent on the spot. And then I had the women. Uh, reach out and take sexual initiative, not sexual, sexual, but hold, ask a guy out that they were really attracted to. And, um, and so the men, the beauty contest sort of addicted the women um, to men's bodies a, a little bit, at least you know a fraction of what men are addicted to women about. And so then the women had some nervousness about asking the guy they were most attracted to out. And then the, I asked them to hold their hand and give them a kiss on the cheek at least. And the women were freaking out. Um, and so uh, that really helped the women understand how, you know, that taking sexual initiatives is not an act of power, but, you know, sort of it's, a, it's powerful when you do it, but it's, uh, the, the fear of doing it uh, was pretty um, intense. Wow, that's a that's a pretty good uh, <laughs> method that you had them do. Is this sort of like a role re- reversal, just to see what the opposite sex is feeling and thinking? Yes, I, I really always. My passion has always been trying to get um, people to walk a mile in each other's moccasins, whether it's an employer, employee, or you know, or male, female. But my emphasis has been on male, female. You know, I think one of the downfalls of the the women's movement is, you know, they started with this equal pay notion and then they extrapolated that to a broader scale to say that the sexes are the same, not only in the in the workforce so so to speak, but they kind of made everybody believe and brainwash them that the sexes are the same, that they're driven by similar core values, which um, I'm also a gender differences expert. I don't believe that at all. And I, and I think that Mother Nature is not stupid. Mother Nature invented two sexes for a reason. Otherwise, mm-hmm. we, we would all be amoebas. Um, and in, <laughs> in my view, I think the sexes are very different. They might both start at, at letter A. They might both want to get to letter Z. But how they navigate the in-between is decidedly different. Absolutely. Um, we're, we're all the same on one level. We all want to be loved. We all want to be respected. We all want to be approved of. Um, and we all have a need for social contact. And, um, and those things are very similar. How we, as you said, as we, how we get that approval, that love, is very different. And our roles historically have been different. So 
Let's go first to that first thing that you said about the women's movement starting from a very legitimate issue of equal pay, which in the 50s and 60s um, was very legitimate. We'll see why it was less legitimate um, as time passed. Um, but the, um, but we, we certainly had um, a focus on um, the differences between the sexes. But now what we see when it comes to the pay gap is that there is there is not a pay gap between men and women per se. There is a pay gap between fathers and mothers. Uh, so it is when women and men have children. So uh, before I start there, the, the w- one way of, of seeing that really clearly is that women who have never been married and never have chi- had children out earn men who have never been married and never had children by 117%. It's a, and so 16% more that women on average who have never been married and never have children have compared to their male counterparts, even that when you control uh, for education, years worked and age and things like that. Um, so, uh, and, and that really makes, so that, that gives you in a sense how, uh, how much the difference happens when men and women become father and mother. So the roles that men and women play when they become father and mother lead to a man who is a dad being much more likely, let's say, to go from a sales rep who's regional to taking responsibilities that are national so he can pay, he can increase his pay to be able to um, earn more money for his wife and his children. Before that, she was earning significantly more. So we have to remember that in the United States today, um, 40% of women who are married who have children um, uh, drop out of the workplace completely for uh for a good part of the first five years, uh, somewhere between two and five of the first five years uh, when they have children. Men, on the other hand, are more likely to increase their focus on the workplace to compensate for what the women are not earning and also for what, what the needs are of children and the greater needs for insurances and uh, orthodontists and having maybe the child with special needs be taken care of in a special way. And so that increases the male pay but it is not male pay in the feminist sense of the word. You know, feminists have sort of equated higher pay to a higher amount of privilege and a higher amount of power. In fact, the road to high pay is a toll road. When um, it, it's a it's an experience of powerlessness. So you, the paradox of high pay is that that high pay is an uh, is a forfeiture of power. It's it's you forfeiting time for your own self to the workplace. It is uh, it is doing things maybe that you often don't like to do, like maybe move um, to a location that you don't want to move to, work weekends when you would have preferred to have it with your family, um, uh, work longer hours, commute further to a job that pays more that's farther away. And these things, many of these things, like commuting time, are not measured by the um, BLS, the Bureau of Labor Statistics, or, or anybody else. And so what I did when I did the research for why men earn more is I looked at um, all the variables that that were differences between males and females in their work life decision and I discovered that there were 25 measurable differences between the decisions that men made and the decisions that women made particularly when they have children and those differences include things like men are far more likely to do um, work in hazardous um, jobs. They're far more likely to do, to do work in the in the outdoors. They're far more likely to do work that women are perfectly capable of doing, um, such as um, driving cabs or trucking, um, but choose not to do because they're 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 um, jobs that um, are somewhat dangerous, um, as driving a cab is. Um, they are far more likely to do jobs that are um, such as um, construction, in which one worker dies in the United States every workday hour, far more likely to join the military, far more likely to be willing to relocate, train, travel, and they're far more likely to be willing to train for technical jobs that have less people contact, like engineering. But when women do do things like engineering, female sales engineers earn 143% of what male sales engineers earn. So by not exposing our daughters to that reality that they, uh, we, and, and having them be victims or play like victims, say that they only, um, that they are, that they're likely, they get less money for the same work. 
we close off our doors to understanding the 40-some-odd the fields in which the woman can earn on the average more than uh, the man does. Dr. Farrell, you touched on so many great points. I, I have often thought uh, the equal pay catchphrase focusing on the wrong thing. It really is um, a, a sort of devaluation of the mother's role in giving birth. I think really that's that's the crux of what's going on. For example, Sweden has some of the most generous parental leave laws in the world, and the government not only considers the mother but also considers the father. So um, the parents are allocated a total of 480 days, which is almost about 16 months per child, which they can take at any time up until the child is eight years old. And then they can share these days, um, and, and some of those days are allocated to the, to the father, of course, as well. And they are still entitled to receive 80% of their wages. Um, so that the, the benefits of this law in Sweden is that the employers have no disincentive when it comes to hiring women who may have children and need lots of time off. Now, compare that to America, which only offers 45 to 90 days time off. Most of the world, by the way, offers three to six months time off. The UK, Norway, and Australia are, are also in the category of giving uh, the mother nine months or more. So I think the real issue is, uh, you know, it's, a, it's, it's an issue on both ends, not only for the mother because she's genetically engineered to produce this child, but the employer worries that, okay, I'm going to train you, I'm going to groom you, I'm going to give you X amount of experience, and then and, you know, lo and behold, you're going to have a child and you may not come back. So, you know, the employer sees that as a waste of my time, my resources, and my money. And the woman sees like, oh, I have to delay pregnancy. I have to delay pregnancy because I need to climb the corporate ladder for X amount of time to feel enough job security to where my job is not, you know, under threat. So I think the real issue is, <laughs> like you say, it's the uh, parental issue. It's the parent issue, not necessarily the equal pay issue. Yes, absolutely. And so Sweden's the, the, the key thing that Sweden has done is that there's a certain amount of that time, parental leave time, about a third of it, that is allocated to the father also. And if the, yes. father, if the father doesn't use it, it is lost. So it's not that it's not just parental leave time without any uh, w without any um, uh, requirement on the part of the father to also be involved. And the key issue about father involvement is that the the degree to which a father is involved in raising children is the degree to which children do significantly better. And one oh, of the reasons, good point. Yes. One of the reasons for that is that um, dads tend, like you were saying a minute ago, that nature sort of created men and women for a reason. Uh, fathers and mothers work best when there's about an equal amount of checks and balances power. So, for example, a mom will do, when I, when I did the research for a book um, called Father and Child Reunion, I was discovering that moms and dads have very different behaviors. One of those behaviors is that the mother will tend to sort of nurture and let's say the child goes to, uh, is in class in second grade and the child comes home and says, you know, I do not like my teacher. She's terrible or he's terrible, probably she. And the, um, and the mother, the mother will be more likely to go, Oh, sweetie, that's terrible. I don't want you to have a bad experience in school. Um, I'll make an appointment with the principal and make sure you get a different teacher. And mm -hmm. the dad will be, the dad will be more likely to say, sweetie, you have to learn with, to live with people that you don't like. And, um, and, and sort of, so why don't you try to do, tell me what's happening here. And, and then he'll try to analyze what's happening and say, well, what can you do differently? The only question that you can control, sweetie, is what you can do differently. Well, I could do maybe this differently, but at the beginning, of course, there'll be complete reluctance to share anything that she could do differently or he could do differently. And, but the father will tend to uh, take that tack. 
And but the mom and dad arguing together are more likely to do something like, okay, we'll make a uh, an appointment with the principal, but only if the daughter or the son does this and this, makes these types of efforts, and then we'll get feedback from the principal. But the dad will often negotiate, you know, let's not agree to change classes right away. Let's see if we can do something uh, that our own child can also be participating in, which is something and- that the mother wouldn't tend to do offhand. Go ahead. Right. And and not one answer is better than the other. It's just offering two different vantage points for the that, child to take advantage of. So that is, Yeah. That, that is exactly right. And and that's the crucial issue for parents to understand because if they don't get what you just said they start getting into an argument as if they're hopeless in terms of their ability to parent compatibly. In fact, the best parenting is parenting where there's a tension that you understand is a tension that is meant to be between the propensity of the father to enforce boundaries and to encourage children to do what they're not comfortable with, take them out of their comfort zone, and the and the propensity of the mother to uh, reinforce their sense of comfort, which we, which we call nurturing. And which is better? Both. Um, and that's why both parents need, need it involved. It's like what, say, which is better nature, which is more important, nature or nurture? And the answer is both. Uh, oh, yeah. you, you need to have, you need to consider both. Um, gotcha. I, I, inter- I interrupted you there for a second. No problem. If you've just joined us, you're currently listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. Today we are talking about, um, today we're talking about the equal pay myth. And let's debunk this. And why do men earn more? You're on with my guest, Dr. Warren Farrell. Uh, Dr. Farrell, we do have a caller on the line. Uh, Sherwin, welcome to our show. Hi. I have a message from a personal friend, John Phelps, who would like to give you a hug before I start my points. Now, with that being said, uh, I come from a military background, MOS 0203, USMC, Ground Intelligence Officer. I'm also Slavic, and I have an engineering background, plus I'm planning on working in Indian Springs State Correctional Facility. Sherwin, can you get rid of the ringing in the background? I don't know if you can mute that. It's kind of distracting a little bit. I'm sorry about that. How do you do that? I don't know. Okay. Maybe it's it's Go ahead. Yes. Go ahead, Sean. So, just like in science and mathematics, there's always more than one variable at play. And I'm going to discuss nature and familial obligations. Like I said before, feminists would like you to believe that the sexes are the same, but come on, I can put on 60 pounds of gears and go on a 10-mile hike in 120-degree Iraq. When you can do that, then you can say we're the same sexes. That's the first point. The second point is, uh, can an engineer make as much as a social worker? And going back on that, when you even compare it to uh, the same positions, uh, women who do not have familial obligations and do not have to take little Susie to soccer practice or junior to football make more than men in an engineering community where it's a male-dominated community. So it is not necessarily about gender gaps. Um, We are in a capitalist society, and I mentioned Slavic culture. That's socialism if you want to make something equal but you don't produce. Over here, my dad was an engineering project manager for a big three company uh, as a foreigner coming from Russia, and he had to make uh, over $750,000 worth of production to justify his $250,000 salary. Had he have not produced that, they would have found somebody who could. So if you want equality, go to the CCCP. That's not America. So I just wanted to give those points out. And I'm going to uh, let the uh, guests uh, field my answers. So really when you break it down, is there really a wage gap? I say no. So with that, I'm going to bid you all adieu and just enjoy the rest of the show. Thank you, Sherwin. Dr. Farrell, I think what what Sherwin is saying is that um, a lot of times men come from the point of view of you have to earn your keep. Uh, Mm -hmm. You can't just sit at your desk and do nothing. And so with equal pay, sometimes I think women think they're going to get this equal pay without putting out any effort. 
Um, you know, the dictionary defines effort with uh, exertion of physical or mental power, an earnest or strenuous attempt, something done by exertion or hard work. So instead, I think a lot of ladies want the equal pay without putting in the effort. And I think employers really don't work that way. Most employers that I know of, in my experience, are looking at the bottom line. In other words, what can you do for me? They really don't care if you're green, yellow, purple, or polka dot, or if your gender is female. If you're adding value to their bottom line, you will you will earn their attention and uh, either get hired or get that promotion. So what say you? Are women asking for too much without putting in the effort? Well, I think one of the best ways to answer that is um, is looking at women who own their own business and comparing them with men who own their own business because there we have no we don't we take away the issue of well the male boss just doesn't value me and my priorities well enough um, to pay me adequately so or. The, the, there may even be a female board, boss, but there's a male culture here that doesn't value um, women um, well, well enough. So when you are your own boss, your own owner of a business, you're obviously um, you have you've developed the culture that you want to create. So when we look at ma- uh, women who own their own businesses, who are the serious women, women with MBAs from equal top business schools to the male. Uh, male counterparts of men who own their own, own business, we have um, women do not earn 76 cents to the dollar. We would think they would earn more than that because they own their own businesses and they don't have to face their discrimi- that discrimination. In fact, women who own their own businesses earn only 49% of what males who own their own businesses earn. Um, and so that gives you a sense. Compa- comparing all categories of businesses, right? Comparing the categories of businesses that women choose to create versus the categories of businesses that men choose to create. And okay. so there, there is a different category of business because when, when the Rochester Institute of Technology um, surveyed business owners within these MBIAs, they also found that the primary vote motivator for men, 76 percent of them said money was my primary motivator starting my to start my own business 29 percent of women said that women put as their primary um, uh, desire um, I want to have flexibility I want to have fulfillment in my job I really want to love what I do I want to be safe and I want to have my own decisions not have somebody telling me what to do the flexibility translated that they wanted to work 25 to 35 hours a week and they wanted to be close to home. All of these things, flexibility of time working, um, so for example, when the Bureau of Labor Statistics says you work full time, that means 35 hours a week or more. So they're comparing, say, somebody at a, at a Whole Foods supermarket that earns, um, that earns good money for a supermarket person because Whole Foods pays well, but they're comparing that person to a cardiac surgeon. The cardiac surgeon is more likely to be a male. Uh, the person working at that supermarket checkout counter is more likely to be a female. And so you're comparing them as if they're equals, um, which is a very obviously a very uh, inaccurate comparison. But the most important thing is um, is understanding that the prior, that women's own articulated sense of priorities are different and those differences become much different when they have children so when i did a study of um, british petroleum before it changed its name to uh, beyond petroleum uh, the what they were asked me to do uh, was to find out from the women they, they wanted to have more female executives so they said uh, warren farrell t- you know tell us why find out from the women without any um They'll never be, never reveal who those women are, but find out from those women in, you know, in all confidentiality, why they are resistant to becoming executives. So after, you know, plummeting, you know, delving through many questions, what I found was that the, that when women earn somewhere between eighty and a hundred thousand dollars a year, their need, their desire to continue producing more money was less, 
and the, um, the British Petroleum um, executives uh, were able to, uh, the, the women who worked were able to earn between 80 and $100,000 without becoming executives. What it, becoming executives did is it added more time, which took away from their um, family life, took away from their personal um, de development, took away from friends, took away from their ability to do things like go to the gym. And they once they had that eighty to hundred thousand dollars covered, they transferred their priorities to wanting to have a balanced life. Uh, whereas the men were not, uh, they still felt that they needed to produce money for the family to a greater degree. So they were willing to give up a balanced life uh, in exchange for um, having more money. And so these are the realities of. Um, and so when you say you know, that many of the feminists just say they want. Uh, and Sherwin was saying what many, many of the feminists really want women to be able to get something for not doing something. Uh, that is pretty accurate. Um, that is that uh, when you look at it, they're framing it all in terms of um, of of, um, of discrimination as opposed to framing it in terms of what do we need to know and do differently in order to earn something equal to to men. Do we want to do more hazardous jobs? Do we want to work more hours? Do we want to relocate to um, Iowa or Alaska where we may not want to deal with the weather? Um, do we, do we uh, without regard for what we want to do, uh, would we want to do um, garbage collecting and get up at three in the morning? Do we want to um, you know, to travel constantly all around the, the country with a, or around the world with, an, um, with national or international responsibilities? Do we want to uh, be away from home for the weekends while traveling and so on? These are things that men are more willing to do, but these are not privilege. These are trade-offs to getting more um, money that anyone who does them can, can do that. And so when I say anyone who does them, here's what I mean. When women do make these sacrifices, they do earn equal to or more than their male counterparts when you control for these 25 variables that I controlled for when uh, I did the research for the uh, Why Men Earn More book and What Women Can Do About It. Gotcha. I, I know there's a quote of yours out there that says something like, uh, women don't get more love for money. Tell us what you meant by that. Where did you, um, you know, yeah, where did yes. you get that? What, that what, men, what boys and men learn um, as, they, as they grow up is that if they are reading wonderful books on self-growth and, and, and um, learning how to be better human beings, um, but they're on the unemployment line. Um, they, um, there's no, there are very few women who are interested in marrying men who are reading why men are the way they are on the unemployment line. Uh, <laughs> whereas if um, a, a, a woman is reading, if she's a, maybe a yoga instructor that makes very little or no money, and, um, and she maybe, if she could, be, she, maybe she does it as a hobby, and she is a, an enlightened and thoughtful and loving person, and she's attractive. Um, then the man doesn't care as much about whether um, she's earning a lot of money. So um, the, the man learns there's no honey if there's no money. And the woman does not, uh, has a much more mixed experience. She may learn that there's no honey if there's no physical attractiveness. Uh, she has her, um, you know, her burden to bear also. Uh, but men's burden is, especially if the woman is interested in having children, there are very few women who look for a man to marry when she wants to have children who earns very little money or she doesn't expect to be earning he doesn't she doesn't expect him to be earning as much money as um, um, as she does and and yet ironically uh, to sort of illustrate the point that you you and Sherwin have been making um, the when a woman um, is full-time involved in the workplace, and she either doesn't have children or she has children. Her husband is the primary caretaker of the children. She moves even before the age of 30 up to the vice presidential level faster than the male counterpart does. This was a study done by um, the, at UCLA's business school. Um, finding that women prior to the age of 30 move up the corporate ladder to the vice presidential level or above uh, faster than their male counterparts do. Um, conversely, uh, which means that the if a woman is so inspired uh, to be out of the workplace, go for it. If money is your primary interest, that's fine. But if you want, many women want to not just have money, 
they want to have a husband and they want to have a good marriage and they want to have children too, what we call the have-it-all woman. How can a woman be the have-it-all woman? She can marry a man who is interested in primarily being involved with the children, maybe earning some money at home, maybe not. And if he and if he does, what we know about children that are raised primarily by dads but have mothers in their lives um, do what better than any other demographic of children. Um, and so when I say better, I mean better on 30-plus variables. Um, their social um, skills, such as being more empathetic, being more assertive. Their psychological skills, like being less depressed, um, being less angry, uh, instantly angry and without a cause. Um, their, um, their physical health, they're, they're likely to be um, absent from school less, go to the hospital and emergency room less. And they're also uh, likely to have um, better grades in every single subject, especially the three most important ones, reading, writing, and, um, and math. Now, here is the kick in the gut for men. I, I had a, a girlfriend in college, and her grandmother grew up during, you know, the hard times, during war times and what have you. And my friend had this mentality that I have to get ahead in life, I have to get my education, I have to earn a lot. So when I first met her, she was an intern in her chosen profession, and she went in a very short amount of time, I would say probably a decade, she went from being an intern to the CEO of the company. She, um, you know, took the company to an IPO, and then a few years later went to second IPO. In other words, she was very, very successful. She was probably earning close to a half million dollars, um, you know, at the end of all that. Now, the kick in the pants is when she first met her husband, he was a corporate accountant. He was making very good money. But soon, you know, towards the end of their marriage, and of course they did divorce, she had no respect for him. In every other way, other than the marriage equation, I mean, other than the money equation, I should say, you know, he was a responsible parent, he was a very romantic partner, um, he had good character, he had a lot of great attributes, but, you know, at the end of the day, maybe he was earning 200000 to her half million, and she wasn't having it. She lost respect for him, and because of that, she had to divorce him. So, (laughs) you know, it doesn't matter that he can do 30 things right, but still the money to a woman still factors into the equation. Yes, it is absolutely true. What you're saying is statistically borne out. And I've seen this. I do many, many couples communication workshops and I've um, organized um, more than 300 men's groups and about 200 women's groups. And the... um, and this is something that comes up again and again, exactly what you're saying. And women are beside themselves at this point because they really, many women are fair and they say, I don't want to feel this way, um, but I, but nevertheless, I do. And it is true that when a man earns less than a woman, even if he's doing all the types of things that you're mentioning as a kind, loving, caring man and maybe even raising the children full time and he's earning, say, 50000 and like you said, she's earning a couple hundred thousand or whatever, um, he, she has a, real, a major challenge with that. Now, that's the bad news. The good news is if a woman works on herself and confronts herself on that issue and says, Basically, if I were do it making that fifty thousand a year, while he was making two hundred thousand, would I expect him to reject me if I was taking good care of the children and so on? And if I was a loving, caring parent who was not rejecting him sexually, et cetera? And her answer would almost invariably be, you know, I would expect that to be enough. And it, for the man, it would be enough. Now, the the male equivalent of culpability is that we can meet a woman who is uh, really just a wonderful, extraordinary, caring, loving woman who is both capable economically and capable in terms of being a good parent, and she's overweight, unattractive to us, and we just can't make it happen. (laughs) So both both sexes have their... Um, their their weaknesses and you know these weaknesses were part of us you know us biologically um, you know, we 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 were programmed males to fall in love with young women because there was the maximum number of years of reproductive um, capability and fall in love with very attractive women because on average attractiveness um, was a fault 
And so we're, that was our biological programming. And women were, um, were biologically programmed to fall in love with men who provided more economic security, not just for themselves, um, but, but in part for themselves, but also in part for their children or their future children, because they wanted their children to be able to have options and to, to be able in the past to survive. And so we're d- dealing with all of this. Now, if the women's movement was saying, we're dealing with all of this. This is all really tough stuff. And we have to move from a survival-focused culture and heritage that we had to um, one that is more flexibility, greater amount of flexibility. And instead of having a women's movement that's blaming men or a men's movement blaming women, we all focused on having a gender liberation movement that tried to liberate both sexes from the rigid roles of the past that were necessary for survival to more flexible roles for the future, which are um, will be even more helpful to survival if we have those flexible roles. Then we have before us a gender liberation movement. Then we don't have these artificial arguments of um, men bad because they're going out and earning more money so the family can survive um, properly and then being blamed for earning more money so the family can survive properly, even if they lose the glint in their eyes, even if they become depressed because they're doing meaningless work. This is the type of dilemma we have, and, and most men are not able to sort of, they're working too hard at their work or they're relieving stress by watching a football or basketball game. And so, and they're not really paying attention to being able to say, something is wrong here. I'm going to find out what's wrong here. I'm going to read, you know, you know, what books like either Why Men Are and More or The Father and Child Reunion and find out and be able to articulate in a loving way uh, to people and my, my partners and my children, um, you know, what, what some alternatives are. Right. Let's take a look at uh, where what men's position is is today why do you think i mean we we talked a little bit about how this got started the debasing of men got started in the early 70s with women's lib but why do you think men are continually being made disposable what social benefit does this serve like who's benefiting from downgrading men the only people that are benefiting from downgrading men is that um, the feminist movement really has politicized men and women and created a um, so and the feminist movement has done wonderful things too i mean i was on the board of the national organization for women in new york city for three years and i think that the expansion of women's opportunities and you know women being able to uh, be encouraged to be in sports that are a large variety of sports that develop all sorts of um, excellent personal skills and is, is wonderful women being able to get more into the stem professions the science technology engineering and math professions these are all wonderful um, gifts that the feminist movement has encouraged and catalyzed uh, for the culture. But it had, but what it, one of the huge mistakes that it made uh, was, um, was modeling male-female in a Marxist modality of oppressor-oppressed. The biggest single myth is that the world is a patriarchal world in which men... Um, uh, in, in which men have made the rules to benefit men at the expense of women. What the world was was not dominated by a patriarchy, but dominated by the need to survive. In order to survive, both dads needed, moms needed to risk their lives raising, um, raising, bearing children and then raising children. They, had, they needed to focus their lives on making their children's lives better. Dads needed to focus their lives on raising money or making a killing in Wall Street or making a killing in the, in the battlefield. And both moms, but what the feminist movement has never acknowledged or understood is that historically speaking, neither sex had rights. Both sexes had obligations and responsibilities. And both sexes sacrificed their lives, their careers on women's parts. Um, they sacrificed, men sacrificed their lives in careers by the obligations that careers created for them. And careers are not glamorous careers uh, for most men. Most men in the United States were farmers for many years and construction workers and, and physical laborers uh, doing things that we often, um, you know, uh, feel are at the, at the lower end of the socioeconomic variable, um, uh, scale. And so these, so men and women's 
had the same goals. A man driving a cab 70 hours a week was earning more than his wife's chances were. But he also didn't want to be driving 70 hours a week. So why was he driving a cab 70 hours a week? So his children would not have to drive a cab. So they would be able to go to college, that they would be able to have opportunities that he never had. Why was mother sacrificing so many hours to make the, her the life better for her children? Exactly for the same reason. Both of our mothers and fathers, our grandparents, sacrificed their lives so they're, with the hope that their children would um, have more options and a better life than they would have. And that is a fundamental understanding that is the core, um, that, that is the core missing ingredient in, um, that makes the women's movement so um, males bad, women, uh, women good. Um, uh, if women earn more, that's because they're competent. If men earn more, that's because they're oppressors. And so men feel caught in a lose-lose situation, which is a lot of the, which was a lot of what was not being understood that led to the election of Trump, I believe. Absolutely. Let's talk a moment. I want to talk a moment about Hillary Clinton. Mm-hmm. You know, every time it's an election year, she champ- she's a champion of equal pay, yet she herself earned her right to the podium in the correct way. In other words, she put in the effort. She graduated from a top law firm. Then she went to work at the most prestigious law firm in her state. Then she went on to marry uh, Bill Clinton, who later became governor and president. And then she went on to be the senator of New York and then was secretary of states. Now, all this laid a tremendous foundation um, for getting to the next step that she saw which was the presidency, right? So she did it the right way, yet she champions equal pay, you know, just based on the person's gender. Um, It's just, it's always a head-scratcher to me is why aren't role models like this, uh, public figure role models, teaching young women that this is a way, not the only way, but a way you can make it to the top, Um, you know, we never hear that. It's almost like she's standing on the equal pay platform just to get votes. Um, yes. same, same thing with Meryl Streep. Last year at the Oscars, you know, here's somebody that, you know, has probably got the most amount of Oscar nominations probably in the history of Oscars. And, again, she was on her platform talking about equal pay, and yet she herself is making more than $20 million a picture. Why not teach the 20-somethings, what she did to get $20 million a picture. Like, why aren't we hearing that story? We're only hearing the platform about, you know, let's go to equal pay. My answer to that is yes, yes, and yes. Um, Once once again, you you hit the nail on the head. And I'll I'll share something more personal with you on that issue. Um, I I did support Hillary Clinton, and um, that's the good news. The bad news was I also had contact with five of her fairly high-level advisors, one of them her, one of her very highest-level advisors who's a close personal friend. Um, and I tried to talk with them about everything we've been talking about on the show today. Yeah. And um, for the most part, I'd say at the 60% level, um, they either felt I made good points or that the, and, and they said they would bring this up with Hillary Clinton. Now, I don't for, uh, for sure know that they did personally, but all five of the top advisors felt that, you know, that they, they were interested in it largely politically. And my political statement was that if Hillary Clinton comes out being more compassionate to men about these types of issues, about acknowledging men as earners and the sacrifices that they've made, about acknowledging fathers as being important, about acknowledging the problems that boys have. My next book will be called The Boy Crisis, and I've been doing research for the last eight years on boys' issues. Um, and so, um, and I explained these issues to the top, some of the top advisors, and they all said, "Wow, we didn't really look at it this way, but we'll, you know, we'll pass this on and have meetings with Clinton." Now, again, I don't know whether these meetings actually happened with Clinton or whether I was just being told that, but, but the feeling that I got was that um, there was something about Hillary that did not want to give up or jeopardize her feminist base. Uh, where she got so, so for example, when I went to one of her fundraisers, because I did contribute to her campaign significantly, and um, she did, she she did the, um, and you know, I, am I playing the women's card? 
yes, I'm playing the woman's card. I'll always play the woman's card. And I'm very happy to play the woman's card. And then she, then everybody in the auditorium stood up. I did so I could see her. Um, and, she, and she said, ah, I always get my most applause on that line. And I think there was a part of her that was unwilling to give up that applause line and that perspective, even though I'm sure intellectually she understood that to to uh, speak up about these other constituencies uh, would have sacrificed zero votes from feminists, because I've never met a feminist who would have said uh, Hillary Clinton is talking a little bit less than she used to about women and more about men and boys and fathers. I'm going to vote for Trump instead. Uh, so she had a zero downside, um, but she, but some part of her was not able to pull herself out of that focus on what had worked for her as a political strategy for so many years. So she wasn't able to make that change. It's it's really unfortunate because I, too, am a woman and I do support men's rights. In fact, that's the title of my show, the Men's Advocate Show. But I think you can play both. I think you can support women and women's rights and still be fair and, and still be a fair and just person. Like, you can do both. You don't have to do one to the exclusion of the other or, more importantly, one to the detriment of the other sex. Precisely. And that's, A, do I not only agree with you, but I'd say, even to magnify that, when either sex wins unilaterally, both sexes lose. And we're, we're all in the same family boat. Um, and the, the good news is, and, and, and historically speaking, we looked at the world and women were, um, women were oppressed and men were the oppressors. That is not a fair analysis of society. And as long as we're thinking that way, we're going to be continuing that same uh, dichotomous dialogue and not finding ways that both sexes um, can love each other and, and benefit each other and recognizing that when either sex is hurting, a man that's out of work is often hurting a family or often providing um, uh, 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 or not even eligible for an opportunity to be a, a, a good parent instead of being a, a worker. Gotcha. If you've currently joined us, you're listening to the Men's Advocate Show with me, your host, Linda Gross. You're on with my guest today, Dr. Warren Farrell. Uh, you can reach him at warrenfarrell.com. That's warrenfarrell.com. Today we are talking about equal pay debunked, why men earn more from, from his best-selling book, you can find find this book as well as his other books, Why Men Are the Way They Are and The Myth of Male Power. Uh, find the links on my Facebook fan page. Dr. Farrell, uh, we have about uh, 30 seconds left. And any closing comments on this topic? You know, many people say, how can I, uh, men in particular say oftentimes, how can I explain this to women without their getting all defensive? And the, the brief answer is listen to the woman first. And um, let her know you're hearing what she says and then ask some, for some time uh, for you to express these perspectives as well. Very good. Thank you, everybody, for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Farrell. It was a pleasure to have you on. Please uh, keep us updated in this field, and you're always welcome back to the show. Uh, for my listeners, we will see you each and every Wednesday, 3 p.m. Pacific, 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Thank you for joining the Men's Advocate Show. We will see you next week.